This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, I'm Robert Singer. I'm a professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and I'm going to talk to you in this lecture about following RNAs, single RNAs, in living cells, and we're going to follow them when they're being born, and we're going to follow them when they get degraded. And I talked to you in the last lecture about seeing individual RNAs in fixed cells, but now we need to develop a new technology to see it in living cells. So, uh, let me just uh, describe what I'm going to talk to you about. I'm going to talk about how we develop tools to actually see RNAs in live cells. Um, then we're going to look at transcription. That's the birth of RNA in yeast and then in mammalian cells. And then we're going to watch RNA export out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm. And once it's in the cytoplasm, the RNA localizes, as I described in the last lecture, in uh, yeast. And I want to uh, also describe how RNA localizes to the right place in neurons a real difficult logistical problem for RNA. And finally, how we're now continuing to develop technology so we can actually see single RNAs in tissues and living animals. So, in order to understand the mechanisms that control RNA in the cell, its transport, its translation, and its... Um, movement and degradation, then we uh, need to develop these technologies. F first of all, we need to fluorescently label the RNAs. We have to use uh, a sample which is opti optically compatible. By that, I mean it can't have a lot of autofluorescence that obscures the signal. We need to use a camera, a sensitive CCD camera, to capture the images rapidly, because when things move, uh, you have to take them, uh, a movie of them, many frames per second, actually video rate, 33 frames per second. And we need to have a wide field of optics, my opt optical microscope with a high numerical aperture objective, so you can co collect as much light as you can from the RNA that's moving around. So here's the system we developed in, uh, two decades ago for, uh, for labeling RNA. And the idea is to use a protein that binds very tightly to an RNA sequence. In this case, the RNA sequence is borrowed from a phage, a bacteriophage, which is an RNA phage, that it has an RNA genome. And the coat protein binds the coats the RNA genome and uh, prevents it from degradation. Uh, and we use the coat protein, which binds as a dimer to the, uh, to the RNA, um, and fuse that to a fluorescent protein, GFP, so that when the capsid protein from the bacteriophage binds to now its sequences that we put into the RNA of interest, 
uh, it carries with it these fluorescent tags and these fluorescent tags. And when they're multimerized and we put in 48 of them, uh, then, or, or 24 of them at least, so that uh, with the dimer uh, GFP, there are 48 fluorochromes, uh, fluorescent proteins associated with each RNA molecule. And that makes the RNA molecule very bright and allows you to follow it um, in time. So, there are now two of these uh, uh, stem loops that we've discovered. One is uh, called MS2, from an MS2 phage, and the other is PP7. The, we've done the crystal structure of these, and they bi don't bind each other's stem loops, because each other's stem loops are different enough that they don't recognize each other's capsid protein. So this gives us the opportunity to use two different colors, and I'll show you some examples of looking at two different colors of RNA in the same cell. Uh, there are other stem loop systems that have been developed as well, so there's possibilities of even more colors if necessary in the future. So, how would we use these stem loops to understand and observe transcription as it occurs in real time? So, here we're using a gene called MDN1, which is the largest gene in yeast. And as you can see over here, this is the uh, in situ image. The, each of these yeast cells has about five to ten of these genes uh, expressed as mRNA. And what we want to do is to take this gene, and we're going to put these stem loops right in the front of the gene. So the polymerase has to go through the gene and make the MS2 uh, binding sites for the RNA, so that the RNA will now have um, these 24 stem loops and 48 GFPs on the front end, at the phi prime end of the RNA. And uh, so what is the kinetics of this going to look like? So um, here's a diagram of what we expect to see, that the um, promoter uh, initiated... the polymerase initiates at the promoter here, and then it goes uh, through the DNA that's coding for the stem loops, and the uh, RNA then continues on for a long time with nothing happening until suddenly at the end of the gene where it terminates, uh, there's a catastrophic loss of signal. And so that's indicated in this um, diagram down here where there's a ramp up of signal as the polymerase goes through the stem loops here, and then a long period of time where no more stem loops are coded for, so none are added to the nascent chains, and then uh, the RNA, this is a single RNA, falls off. So let's take a look at what we actually see here. Here is an actual data from um, yeast transcription. So in this uh, example here, we have yeast that... where the nu nuclear uh, pores are tagged with a red dye, and inside them you can see that little spot fluctuating around. That's where the RNA is being transcribed, and it's bouncing around because uh, the nucleus moves around in yeast. And here is a 
algorithm that was uh, designed to just follow the gene and measure its intensity at every frame. And so, if you plot this intensity at every frame, you see uh, the... what's interesting about transcription here. You... the, the bottom line here, the green uh, line, the baseline, is uh, just the coat protein that's in the background that's uh, not binding to the gene. And this uh, yellow signal is the is the brightness of the fluorescence from the gene. So you could see a polymerase gets on and it starts to make a, a, uh, an RNA. And then suddenly there's a jump up as a second polymerase gets on and it makes an RNA too. So it's making this RNA. And a third polymerase gets on here, right here. And, uh, and then over the next 20 minutes or so, what happens is the RNAs now uh, fall off the end of the gene, and the whole gene goes down to a baseline level right here. So, uh, you can analyze this uh, data, and from the analysis, um, you can see that... Uh, that the transcription um, is... is stochastic. That is, the uh, gene... you never know when the gene is going to start making an RNA, and you never know when the RNA is uh, going to come off and when the next polymerase is going to get on. And this is a, a direct uh, illustration of what's known as transcriptional bursting. That is, transcription suddenly turns on, some polymerases get on, they make some RNA, and then the RNAs fall off and the gene goes back to a quiescent state for a while until it's next... Uh, until its next activation. Okay, so one can look at this um, as well in mammalian cells. And uh, you can see uh, here that we've inserted a gene in the... Uh, in the nucleus, uh, in, into the DNA. And this gene is amplified many times, so it gives a very bright locus. And you can see the RNA coming off that gene buzzing around in the nucleus like a swarm of angry bees. And uh, this tells us right away that the mechanism that RNA exports from the nucleus is really one of diffusion. Because if the RNA were pumped out into the cytoplasm directly from the gene here, uh, then you would... Uh, you would expect... Uh, most of the RNA to be going out here, because it, the gene is close to the edge of the nucleus. But instead, the nucleus fills up homogeneously with RNA particles. And then, eventually, it comes out and uh, it ends up in the cytoplasm. You can see RNAs moving around in the cytoplasm as well. So, one of the things this tells you is, is this is likely to be diffusional event and not a directed event. And also, this uh, RNA movement in the... in the cytoplasm also appears to be largely diffusional. The DNA itself doesn't change much. So you can see the DNA uh, up there in the top left doesn't... Uh, stays pretty much intact, because it's tagged with a protein 
that binds to the DNA and not the RNA. And in this panel here, uh, we're looking at proteins that are been made by the RNA. And the proteins go into a structure called a peroxisome, and these little uh, spots of blue here are really the protein that's been sequestered in the peroxisome. So here we can see the, the uh, transcription and the export and the ultimate result of the translation of the same RNA. So in order to prove that this, uh, these events are diffusion, you have to track a single RNA molecule. And you do this by actually following a track of molecules in the nucleus after they've left the site of transcription. And uh, you can measure the diffusion coefficient. And you plot their, their um, movement by squaring the distance that they've moved as a function of time. And if it's a straight line, then what you get is a... Uh, is, is uh, evidence for diffusion. And in fact, they do follow a straight line. And uh, only after a certain amount of time do they deviate a little bit from a straight line. That's known as anomalous diffusion. And the reason they deviate a little bit is because they're banging into stuff in the nucleus, because the nucleus is not a homogeneous structure. It's got DNA and chromatin and nucleoli and all sorts of other structures in it that the RNA has to bang into. Uh, so it takes a, an indirect path to, uh, for diffusion, but, uh, but it's still uh, explainable by diffusion. The point is that there's no directed movements in the nucleus, and there's no motor that's involved in moving the RNA out of the nucleus, something that was um, proposed about this time to occur because there's actin and myosin in the nucleus, and people were saying, well, RNA must be directed out. But it turns out that diffusion is extremely efficient. And it's efficient because if you take the diffusion coefficient and apply it to a nuclear volume and ask the question, how long would it take for an RNA to diffuse around and hit a nuclear pore? to be exported to the cytoplasm, of which there are 3,000 nuclear pores in the nuclear envelope, the time expected would be relatively short, like less than a minute, half a minute, uh, for instance. Uh, so the average RNA will accidentally bang into a nuclear pore within half a minute or so. Now, when it does that, something completely different happens, because the RNA goes from diffusion to a directed transport from one side of the pore to the other. And so how does this happen? And can we see this? So in order to see it, uh, we had to label nuclear pores with a red um, floor. And, um, and the RNA, of course, is green with GFP, as I described. And then we wait and watch the pores and look for a, an event there where the RNA takes time to go through the pore. And the time it takes to go through the pore is directly measurable. Now, in order to do this, we had to make a microscope and, uh, that was able to record very fast frame rate, 10 millisecond frame rate. Um, so that's 100 frames a second. 
And we had to align the red and the green exactly so that they superimposed to within uh, 10 or 15 nanometers. So, uh, you can see this, this event occurring here where the arrow is pointing, and that tells us uh, the time to go through the pore. And then we can zoom in on some of this. And uh, here is uh, a high magnification of RNA going through the pore. So, the center of the pore is right here, and you can see the RNA going through, and you can see the, the clock running down there. And the time is approximately 160 milliseconds. Up here, we have a few RNAs, only about 10% of RNAs, which get to the pore but can't seem to, to get out. They can't seem to get an exit visa to be, uh, to be released from the nucleus and go into the cytoplasm. And this, we think, might represent some kind of quality control step where the RNA is actually being vetted for its quality to be a cytoplasmic RNA and make protein. We don't know if that's true. It's just a hypothesis. So, uh, we can look at many of these events and, and, uh, and build up a histogram of where these dwell times occur and for how long it stays at each side of the pore. Now, remember, we have a pore which is several hundred micron... Uh, nanometers in width. And uh, we could... we have a resolution of only 15 nanometers, so we could see exactly where the RNA delays at each point of there, where at that dwell time. And it turns out that from analyzing all this data, that counterintuitively, the time the RNA spends going through the pore is very short, only about 5 milliseconds. The time of the, the total 160 milliseconds, therefore, in the dwell time is really the time it takes the RNA to actually get ready to go through the pore. So, here it binds to the nuclear basket on the inside of the pore, and then it um, goes through the pore rapidly and takes another millisecond, uh, 80 milliseconds on the other side of the pore to, um, to actually be released from the pore into the cytoplasm. So, this indicates that there's some remodeling going on. There are proteins on RNA which have to be stripped off that say this is, uh, this is a nuclear molecule. And then when it gets to the uh, cytoplasmic side of the pore, there have to be proteins that are stripped off which say, uh, now you are a cytoplasmic molecule and you can't go back into the pore. If you delete some of those proteins, um, then the RNA direction uh, is confused and the RNA comes back out and stands about a 50% chance of turning around going back in the nucleus unless those proteins are stripped off. So, the identity of the molecule is made up by proteins that are positioned either in the nucleus and the cytoplasm for, for, uh, for the uh, localization of the RNA in the nucleus or the cytoplasm. Okay. And uh, you can see other interesting uh, observations um, when you're looking at this in real time. 
for instance, uh, here's an example where RNAs, uh, this particular RNA molecule is searching for a pore that's going to let it out. And uh, not all pores are receptive, so it has to bounce around from pore to pore, and then finally it goes out right, right there into the cytoplasm. So it's tried three or four times to, uh, to find an acceptable pore or a receptive pore, but uh, it takes a little while for this to happen. So this indicates that... Then the reason for this, I think, is, is because pores are very busy. They're transporting tons of stuff, both in and out, ribosomal proteins, RNAs, and so forth, and they may just get saturated and um, not be able to send this particular mRNA out until they find a, a spot on the pore to, uh, to dock and to be uh, processed for export. Okay. Now, once RNA gets into the cytoplasm, it's a completely different story. It's no longer diffusing that much. And I want to um, show you, once again, this localization of RNA um, that, uh, that allows us... Uh, that allows the RNA to actually engage in changing the switching of a mother and a daughter cell. So, uh, as I said in the previous lecture, uh, ASH1 is a protein which is localized to the daughter cell specifically, and it makes a protein in the daughter cell which prevents the gene switching um, that uh, occurs in the mother cell, because there's no protein in the mother cell. And this gene switching then allows mating in the next uh, cell cycle. And you can come up with a diploid cell at that point. Okay, so um, how does this occur? How is this RNA localized from the mother to the daughter? Um, well, here's, here's uh, images of the RNA that were... Just to remind you that uh, this RNA is localized to the bud tip and makes the protein here that uh, goes into the daughter nucleus. Here's the daughter nucleus. Here's the mother nucleus up here. And um, this requires uh, localization elements that localize the uh, ASH1 mRNA to the bud tip here. And if you do a point mutation in this, the, uh, the RNA cannot localize at all. It has no idea where it's supposed to go. So let's take a look at this uh, process. Here it is occurring now in... Uh, this is a four-minute movie, speeded up. And you can see here, in the wild type, the, uh, the RNA here starts in the mother, and it bounces around a little bit. And then it gets low, immediately exported into the bud, where it docks there and makes protein. Now, as I told you, the zip codes organize proteins, one of which is a, is a motor protein, myosin. And if you delete myosin in its uh, motor domain, uh, so it can't cleave ATP, so there's only one single mutation in that protein, 
the RNA now can't get anywhere because the motor can't carry it from the mother to the daughter. Okay, so uh, this is just uh, an analysis of the frames, uh, the RNAs uh, that diffuses around, then it gets hooked up to a, uh, a, an actin filament so the myosin can carry it all the way up to the bud, and uh, then where it's it falls off the actin, diffuses around, and binds to the bud tip. And this is the this is the plot of, uh, here of the uh, motor mutation, so the RNA can't move. When you measure the speed of this movement, uh, it's really uh, 0.6 microns per second, which is the speed of the myosin motor that uh, we have identified genetically. Okay. So let me turn now to another much more complex form of RNA localization, and that's neurons. So in neurons, we have this structure, and this is a neuron which has been labeled with GFP actin. And so you can see that actin is an important structural protein in neurons, and particularly for these little blobs that we see in these dendrites, uh, known as dendritic spines. And those dendritic spines serve as landing pads for incoming neurons to make synapses. So, um, these synapses have to be strengthened for learning and memory to occur. And that strengthening requires protein synthesis specifically at the site of this little dendritic spine. So, how is it that the RNA that's necessary for making this protein, manages to find its way to this little spot in this neuron and make protein there and not everywhere else. So that was a question that um, intrigued us. And so uh, one of the ways that we approached it was we thought, let's make a gene which we have tagged in the mouse, an endogenous gene. We tag it in the mouse by putting in MS2 sites directly into the gene itself. So this is the actin gene. Actin's an essential gene, and we put in these stem loops into the end of the gene, the 3' UTR, and uh, we make a mouse that's got every actin gene tagged with these uh, 1.2 kilobases of stem loops. So you'd think, well, this is an essential gene, and maybe all these stem loops in the gene are going to screw it up. But, in fact, the gene works perfectly fine. So then we pushed our luck and we said, well, let's make now a transgenic mouse that makes the capsid protein in all cells from a ubiquitous promoter. And we're going to mate these two so that every cell has a labeled actin gene with this M... Uh, with the uh, MS2 capsid protein, MCP. And so, uh, we get this hybrid mouse. Now, every single actin molecule, every single mRNA in every single cell in this mouse is labeled with this GFP. And you might expect that this mouse would be uh, definitely impaired by having all this junk put on its essential gene, uh, not only the MS2, but also the capsid proteins. 
But in fact, the mouse is fine, and it's gone through, you know, dozens of generations without any uh, sign of, of uh, being uh, impaired by it or disliking this arrangement. So um, now we can actually look at what's going on in the neurons that are cultured from this mouse. And so here are primary hippocampal neurons. And you can see uh, RNAs move around a lot in these neurons. Many of them stay stationary, but some of them actually go back and forth. Check this one out right here. Goes back and forth uh, in uh, sort of cruising around. It's like the RNAs are cruising around looking for action, which is what we think they're doing. They are searching the dendritic space very efficiently for finding uh, places where synaptic activity has occurred. And even the, the ones that are stationary eventually move. So if you watch this neuron for two hours, every RNA in this neuron picks up and moves around looking for a better place. And this, uh, when this was published, this was actually put on YouTube under the heading Molecular Basis of Memory. You can look at it. It got 400,000 views just by that sort of tantalizing title. So how can we test this hypothesis that RNA goes to places where stimulation occurs, uh, sort of a presynaptic um, event, uh, an event which precedes synapse formation? So we can experimentally do this by making a by using a molecule that is we can activate to stimulate the, the um, receptors in the, in the dendritic spine. And we stimulate it with light. And that's because the molecule is a caged neurotransmitter. Caged means it can't interact with the receptor until you shine light on it. So we shine a laser flash on it, and then that the activated molecules, which are glutamate molecules, interact with these receptors, glutamatergic receptors, calcium floods in, and you get a signal for an RNA to show up at that site. That's the experimental model. And um, here's the actual uh, raw data. You can see here the flashing of the laser at that spot. And then an RNA shows up, and a second RNA shows up. It's going to loop around again. One RNA. And a second one actually goes past the site, turns around, and comes back to the activated spot. So uh, this all occurs within, you know, seven minutes or something like that. So this is a pretty rapid response. And what we think is happening is the RNAs cruising around, and the next RNAs to cruise by get caught by this activated dendritic spine. Here's a, just another demonstration of it. Um, you select a bare area of the uh, neuron uh, and uh, activate, with three pulses here, uh, the spines. And then uh, in this 20-minute time course, within 10 minutes, RNA shows up at that site. And you can uh, now do this many, many times and build up a this kind of analysis. And you can see here that almost 60% uh, of the time, RNA will show up within 
10 minutes or so after you've done this activation of a particular synaptic uh, region. Uh, and if you block the receptors, no RNA shows up there. Or if you um, block uh, another type of receptor, AMPA receptors, um, then uh, RNA also is impaired from showing up. If you shut off translation of the RNA, so it can't translate, it doesn't affect its localization, indicating you don't have to translate the RNA to get it to stay there. And finally, if you just uh, leave out the uncaged uh, neurotransmitter and then... Uh, but use the laser, this just is a control to show that the laser does not in itself cause RNA to localize at that spot. And so, here's the uh, observations in, uh, in the form of histogram, but you can see it's highly significant that RNA uh, can, uh, will be localized in a response to a synaptic pulse. And it localizes precisely at the site where you activate and not, you know, downstream or upstream from that site, anterograde or retrograde, and uh, that's also subject to uh, the same provisions of uh, control that the time of arrival was. So, site of localization and time of arrival, precisely controlled. So, here's the model of how it works. The RNA is cruising around, um, looking for action, and uh, then you get an activated synaptic uh, dendritic spine here that's uh, sort of an ersatz synapse, and the RNA comes and localizes there. And we know one thing about what's required. We know that the protein ZBP1, which I talked to you about previously in a previous lecture, which is important for RNA localization, actin RNA localization, uh, is necessary for this anchoring of the RNA at the synaptic spine, because if you look in knockout mice, the uh, RNA cannot localize at all here. So, now the question is, the RNAs are localized, but how do we... how do they know when... when to make the protein? So, a graduate student made this serendipitous and interesting observation. She had very keen eyes, and uh, she looked at uh, neurons that she f had fixed and was probing for NC2 hybridization with a probe to the MS2 sites. And she saw that almost no RNAs were hybridized by the... Uh, by the probe. And that's here in this panel. Uh, this green line here shows that almost no RNAs are... Um, are localized... Are, are detected. However, if she stimulated the entire neuron with a... with a general bath, so the whole neuron gets stimulated, suddenly the RNAs all appeared, very bright. And she said, well, this must mean the RNAs were locked up in some sort of undetectable form, and then suddenly become detectable. And that's probably proteins that are coding it. Uh, in the form of a granule. So, if we digest those proteins with a little bit of proteinase, a little bit of an enzyme to digest the protein, we should be able to phenocopy the result. We should be able to get the same result 
that we got with a stimulation. In fact, that's true. The RNAs all come back. And it's... Um, and this is a time course, which is very interesting, because it shows that, well, you stimulate the neurons, and then you wait, um, and then look to see if the RNAs are still detectable. And about half an hour later, they've all gone back to the state, which we call the occult state, where they cannot be accessed by the probe. But it's not like they degraded, because you can stimulate the neuron again, and the RNAs come right back. So the whole thing is uh, that RNAs go into granules, and they're not accessible uh, to the probe, or they're not capable of being translated until that uh, RNA has been stimulated, until the neuron's been stimulated. So here's the model of how it works. You have uh, a stimulated... a stimulation coming in from a synaptic contact. It comes through into the... into the postsynaptic neuron. And uh, a granule cruises by with RNA in it. And that uh, activation caused the granule to come apart. And uh, comes apart, the RNA is now released at that site, and it makes uh, the protein right there where it fell apart. But this only happens for a short amount of time, 30 minutes, and it can only make proteins in that 30 minute, and then it has to be re-stimulated. And so, this is kind of a molecular model for learning uh, and behavior, because you need constant reinforcement for learning. You know, you memorize a poem, you have to read it many, many times before you've memorized it. And so, this is kind of the molecular basis of that. You get a stimulation, you activate, you strengthen a, the synapse, but the synapse is not strengthened until you receive many, many more stimulations. And then the actin here forms a, a structural component which grows the spine and stabilizes its structure. And there you have a permanent synapse. Now, because, you know, going forward, the future of this work, I think, is to be able to image this process in living animals. And here's a model of how this is done. You make a... you make a cranial window in the mouse uh, head, and you can look right through this window into the... into the active neurons, just as a mouse is behaving or learning or is stimulated in some way. And uh, that whole process can now be followed in, in neurons with some additional technology that... Uh, that would require um, long working distance objectives and uh, adaptive optics and other processes which allow us to see inside tissue. So that's kind of a future work, but here is some original... Uh, some of the uh, initial data where we're actually looking in at hippocampal neurons in a tissue slice, and we can see the actual um, RNA in the neurons, and we can follow RNA as it moves uh, along in the... in the dendrites of uh, the living animal in the part of the brain where memories are formed. And this is another example where you can see 
the, the fact that you can see these processes is because there's RNA in them, because the RNA is tagged with a GFP, and that's what makes them bright. Any GFP that is not bound to RNA stays in the nucleus, because it has a nuclear localization signal. So that's why these nuclei up here are, uh, are bright, and the dendrites are, uh, are less bright, but still visible, because, as you can see, there's RNA in them moving around, much as they were when I showed you the cultures. So, this is the work that's... Uh, this is the funding that supported this work, and, uh, and thanks very much for, for uh, listening. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Lasker Foundation.